Okay, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm just going to intro our moderator, Rahel Bayar, before we get started with How Do We Get to Peace, featuring Dr. Gabor Mate and Rabbi David Wolpe. Uh, Rahel Bayar is the founder of the Bayar Group, a consultancy that works with institutions across North America on creating safe spaces with a focus on abuse and harassment prevention. She's a former sex crimes and child abuse prosecutor, former managing director of the sexual misconduct division of a large investigative company, and is a sought-after keynote speaker and podcast guest. You can find her on Instagram or LinkedIn under rahel.bayar or on her website, thebayargroup.com. Thank you so much, Ben. I want to welcome everybody here today. And I want to set the tone with sharing some parameters for the conversation that we are about to have. Hard conversations can be had with people who have a viscerally different view of something. In this day and age of polarized rhetoric and either or mentality rife with watching people have an inability to listen and engage feels like it is paramount and today presents a unique opportunity. Rabbi David Wolpe and Rabbi Gabor Matei appear to have very differing views on Israel and Palestine, and much has been shared by both of them since the terror attack by Hamas on October 7th. We are living through a time where our inability to listen to each other has created a seismic shift in the lived experiences of Palestinians, of Israelis, of Muslims, of Jews, and honestly, people of all faiths. So today we are joined by Dr. Matei and Rabbi Wolby. Dr. Matei is a retired Canadian physician, a public speaker and a best-selling author. He speaks on addiction and stress and mind-body health, child development, trauma, ADHD, and other topics related to his five best-selling books published in nearly 40 languages. Rabbi David Wolpe served as the Max Webb Senior Rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles for 26 years. In May 2023, he became Rabbi Emeritus there and now teaches at Harvard Divinity School. He recently resigned from the Harvards from Harvard's anti-Semitism advisory group. Rabbi Wolpe is also the Rabbinic Fellow at the ADL Senior Advisor of the Maimonides Fund and has authored eight books. Many of you who are watching today have come here to listen to these two people, and hundreds of questions were submitted in preparation for this talk. We obviously are not going to get to every single question, but we have attempted to pull together the most requested questions for both of you to answer. As this is meant to be a civilized discussion, there are a few things to note. It is possible that because I am an individual calling questions from people I do not know, that the question may feel triggering based on the language used. If that happens, please know that I intend no disrespect to either of your lived experiences. Additionally, I will intercede if we need to pause or breathe, although I hope that we will not need that pause. And our plan is that each speaker should have the same amount of time to answer each question. Neither Dr. Matei nor Rabbi Wolpe have seen the questions in advance, and I have no personal connection nor professional connection to either speaker or to our host, Sinai Temple. This conversation is not meant for a gotcha moment. There's no setup to get either of these speakers to say anything specific, not in the questions asked, nor in the perspectives that they will share. I hope that for those of you watching, 
whether you agree or disagree, no matter how you feel, that we can carve out room to move to a place where hatred towards anyone, Palestinians, Israelis, Jews, Muslims, has no place, and where we can discuss meaningful ways to get to peace. So to start, the most asked question of those submitted, do you believe that Israel has a right to exist? And what does that mean in terms of a future state of Israel and state of Palestine and a possible two-state solution? I turn to the two of you to decide who will answer this first. I, I doubt that anybody expects Dr. Or, or, or Rabbi Wolf to say that Israel does not have the right to exist. So the, um, <clears throat> maybe I'll take the question first. And uh, as we agreed, we'll alternate back and forth, forth as to who's going to be first or second in answering questions. L let me say, first of all, that the conversation is extremely difficult. I mean, anything that comes to Israel-Palestine, um, I have found over nearly 50 years now, since my Zionist days, that the, the conversation is emotionally fraught and um, it's very difficult to even be heard or to hear the other, let alone to come to any kind of agreement. And um, I think there's a huge trauma vortex in which this conversation takes place. I'm talking about Jewish historical trauma. I'm also talking about uh, Palestinian historical trauma that is not much acknowledged by the mainstream Zionist perspective. So when it comes to understanding, answering the question, there's also a universal tendency that shows up in my marriage, but, but in all kinds of uh, situations, it's easier for us to perceive ourselves as victims rather than to see what, what our own particular contribution to a conflict or, or a situation might be. So, and, and I come from Eastern Europe, where there's so much atrocity historically that has been perpetrated by one people against another, by Hungarians against Slavs, by various Slavs against Muslims, by Muslims against everybody, by everybody against Jews. And in all of these situations, people hold on to the sense of what was done to us rather than what we've done to others. So this question of does Israel have the right to exist? Here are the facts. First of all, let's take Canada where I live. Canada was established by um, oppressing and in many of, often killing and um, ethnic cleansing the indigenous population. Does Canada have the right to exist? Nobody argues about it. The United States, as we know, was founded on the genocide of indigenous people and on the uh, oppression, and then the importation of slaves from Africa. Nobody questions the state, the, the, um, the right of the United States to exist. But whenever anybody brings up Israeli history and what was done to the Palestinians, people immediately say, well, don't you agree with the right of Israel to exist? That's not in question. Israel exists, it's a state. It has internationally recognized borders, which Israel doesn't recognize, but the international community does. And it has a recognized government that's recognized by all other governments around the world. 
So the right of Israel to exist is not in question. How it was founded needs to be understood, just as we need to understand how the United States was founded, or how Canada was founded, or how Australia was founded, without questioning the right of these countries to exist. But in order to move forward to peace, we have to understand the history. So in a nutshell, and I'll stop here, and I'll say more about it later, Israel was founded in the dispossession, ethnic cleansing, and massacres of the local population, which I'll, and I'm going to do something racist today, which is I'm not going to quote any Palestinian sources. I'm only going to quote Jewish sources and Israeli sources. It's like talking about the history of the Jews in Eastern Europe without quoting any Jewish uh, uh, testimony. But I will not quote Palestinian testimony today. I'm grounding everything I'm saying on Israeli and Jewish sources, and I'm saying that's what Israel was founded on the one hand. On the other hand, yes, it has the right to exist. Okay? Rabbi Wolpe. I would just ask you, I think you are muted, so I want you to unmute yourself. Sorry. Um, that, would be, that would be a first. In fact, uh, unfortunately, the truth is that the quest, the right of Israel to exist is questioned universally again and again um, in such places as the most elite universities in the world. Uh, I know because I see it every day at Harvard. Um, it's not taken for granted. And in fact, it is the explicit ideology of people like Hamas that Israel ought not to exist. Um, the fact that there are internationally recognized boundaries in theory doesn't negate the fact that, for example, the Houthi flag says on its flag, death to America, death to Israel, curse the Jews, God is great. So the pretense that there isn't a threat to Israel's existence that we all know that everybody accepts that Israel exists is, is just not true. Um, I think we will debate the origins of the state of Israel. Um, I've read the same historians that I suspect Dr. Mate will quote, and, and we aren't going to come to agreement on that. But nonetheless, um, in response just to the question, which wasn't how did it come to be, but does it have a right to exist? Unequivocally, it does. Uh, I wish not that the world agreed, but that its opponents agreed. And I will just say that every country that acknowledged Israel's right to exist lives in peace with it, and only those that don't, don't. Now, both of you referenced um, Dr. Rabbi Wolpe in, in response to something that Dr. Matei said, but both of you referenced the idea of the origins of the state of Israel, that the question that was asked of, do you believe that Israel has the right to exist? That question for Dr. Matei, and please correct me if I'm wrong, we the answer is it, it has the right to exist, but we have to discuss the history of the origin of the state. And so I would turn to both of you, and Rabbi Wolpe, I believe it's your turn to answer first. Talk to us about the complexity of the origins of the state of Israel in relation to even answering the question that I just asked. So there are multiple narratives, all of which have a piece of the truth, like the blind men and the elephant, about the existence of the state of Israel. Um, let me just say a couple of things about the origin of the state. First of all, uh, 
massacres did occur in the Middle East long before there was a state of Israel. There were massacres of Jews by Arabs, for example, in the 20s in Hebron and other places. In the 40s, there were massacres. Um, and uh, and what happened when the state was declared after 19, after the destruction of a third of the Jews in the world was that immediately a war was launched against the incipient state of Israel trying to strangle the baby in its crib. Um, in the course of that war, terrible things happened on all sides, including, and I think that it's important to acknowledge, Jews did some awful things at the beginning of the war, and it's been chronicled by Jewish historians. Unfortunately, Arab records are not open, so we can't do an equivalent deep dive into um, what happened on the other side. But that is certainly true, that Jews did some terrible things in the founding of the state of Israel. Um, I think that it's worth remembering that 25% of the army that fought the state of Israel were what were then called DPs. We now call them refugees, and they're not just refugees. They're people who were liberated from the concentration camp and then stayed in the concentration camp for years. Remember, the war ended in 1945. The state was founded in 48 because no one in the world would take them. No one. So they fled to Israel as the only refuge in the world. The United States wouldn't take them. Canada wouldn't take them. Latin America wouldn't take them. And they languished behind the same chains that they had been put into by the Nazis. Then they came to this place, to Israel, and a war was fought. And again, you will hear that they did terrible things in the course of the war. Terrible things, absolutely. But they were not alone in doing terrible things uh, and certainly have not been since and have had to fight not only in 48 when the state began, but again in 56 and again in 67 and again in 73 and then through intifadas. Um, there has never been a general acceptance of this state. And uh, even though, at least as far as I know, there has in fact been an acknowledgement of the injury to the Palestinians, as Dr. Montez said, he's going to be quoting Israeli sources, so I don't see how that isn't an acknowledgement. Um, even though there has been an acknowledgement, um, what there has not been, unfortunately, is a mutual acceptance that would lead to peace. Dr. Matei. All right, thank you. Um, you know, uh, every time, I'm sure this is true for my distinguished interlocutor as well, but every time he says a sentence, I have 10 others that I want to jump in and respond with. And uh, that was true for his first response about the uh, right, uh, right of Israel to exist, and it's true right now as well. I'll try and make it as, uh, I'll try and make it as, simply, as simple as I can. Um, the dilemma of the Zionist movement, which was a genuine response to Eastern European Jewry's suffering, and to some extent, the historical suffering of the Jewish people, could only be accomplished by one dynamic, which is the displacement of the local population. Um, th that this slogan of a land without a people for a people without a land was never true. And uh, I'll quote you a German Zionist in, in 1925. And by the way, he wasn't the first one to say this. This was said right from the beginning of the Zionist movement. He said, we may be a people without a home, 
he wrote, but alas, there's not a country without a people. Palestine has an existing population of 700,000. The people who have lived there for centuries and, and rightfully considered a country as their fatherland and homeland. So that was the Zionist dilemma of how he created state in a country which is already occupied, not occupied, but inhabited by people who have been there for hundreds of years and maybe even longer. And uh, David Ben-Gurion, who, whatever he was, and he was a great leader, I don't say he was a moral reader, but leader, but he was a great leader. Um, he said, if I were an Arab leader, I would never sign an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have taken their country. It is true. God promised it to us. But how could that interest them? Our God is not theirs. There's been anti-Semitism. The Nazis, Hitler, and Auschwitz, what was that their fault? They see but one thing. We have come in, we have come, and we have stolen their country. Why would they accept that? Um, now, what happened was, is that with British support and under the British imperial umbrella, the Zionists were able to colonize Palestine and create settlements and create a structure and quite an astonishing achievement, a whole new Hebrew culture and a language, um, an economy, and even military. The Arabs were opposed to this right from the beginning. In 1920, uh, Dr. Ader, head of the Zionist Commission, said that our aim is to make Palestine, in as short as time possible, to make Palestine as Jewish as America is American and England is English. Now, how exactly were the Palestinians to feel about that? How would we feel in that situation? And then comes the UN resolution when all the countries, as Dr. as the rabbi Wolf pointed out, Wolf has pointed out, who didn't want the Jews, and who had actually in whose territories the Jews had been killed, now decided to solve the Jewish problem by creating a Jewish state in Palestine. And so this UN resolution, um, voted in by the brutal Stalinist dictatorship in its Eastern European clients, and the American empire and its brutal Latin American dictatorship clients, they all decided, let's create a Jewish state. Let's let the Arabs solve the Jewish problem. And at that time, and the state was so divided that the majority of the land was given to the minority of Jews, most of them were recent immigrants, and the Palestinians were supposed to accept this. Why the heck would they? Why would we accept it in their situation? As regards the terrible things done by Jews that Rabbi Wolpe acknowledges, that's not the point. The point is that the deliberate policy of expulsion and house demolitions and the destruction of entire villages that a whole raft of Israeli historians have documented beyond any shadow of doubt. So we're not talking about individual Jews committing massacres and rapes, which has been documented as well. But yep. we're, talk we're talking about a policy of expulsion that was the dynamic and the official intention of the Zionist uh, movement in 1947-48. And hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were expelled long before the Arab invasion in 1945. 
Those are the facts, not disputable. So I actually, I actually, Rabbi Wolpe, I'll turn it back over to you. Um, but I actually yes. want to allow you a chance to respond and then for Dr. Matei to be able to respond to you because that is how a conversation goes. Fair enough. But I want to draw your attention to one thing that Dr. Matei said. He used the terminology um, of this is fact, right? That this is indisputable. Right. He used the terminology of what, what he has quoted Ben-Gurion as saying, right, with regard to taking someone's country, to taking the Palestinians' country, not someone's, the Palestinians' country, or stealing their, their land, right, that it has been stolen land. And I and in using the concepts or the words expulsion, destruction, stealing, I do want to throw back to you how you both want to respond, how you, Rabbi Wolpe, want to respond to that. And if you could speak a little bit to the language of fact, and expulsion and destruction. And I'd like to add a piece to that because I am used to compound questions, which is how do we take that concept and also acknowledge and recognize the historical significance of Jews having lived there? Not just a historical significance of a right to live there, but the fact that there have been Jews that have lived there for a very, very long time. How do we take okay. these concepts and discuss this together? Rabbi Wolf. So this is this is in fact a complicated question. I mean, first of all, a lot of the property was purchased by Jews. Um, we have land deeds and records and so on, even though then people were uncomfortable with the fact that they had sold their land to the Jews um, for understandable reasons. And also when we're talking about expulsion and ethnic cleansing, um, I would like to remind us all, 750,000 Jews were e ethnically cleansed from Arab lands and they came to Israel. The majority population in Israel is from the Middle East, not from Europe. And that's because a quarter of the Middle East used to be Christian. We forget Christianity is not a European religion. It's a Middle Eastern religion. Why are there no Christians in Syria or Yemen or Iraq or Iran? Just for the same reason that there are no Jews in Syria or Iraq or Yemen. These And, and the Iranian population is tiny, I know, because most of my congregation in Los Angeles uh, was Iranian. And I heard the stories of what it was like to grow up in Arab and Muslim lands in the Middle East. And so the idea that there is a sort of guiltless population that was descended upon by these Jews is, to, to quote my distinguished interlocutor, simply not historical. Um, in fact, Jews were fleeing not only from Europe, but also from the Middle East. They had massacres not only in Europe. If you would like me to retail the massacres of Jews in Arab lands and Muslim lands, I will be more than happy to do so, but I think you can look that up on Wikipedia. You don't need me for it. And so it doesn't seem to me so unreasonable that out of 50 Muslim countries and 21 Arab countries, that one Jewish country in a place where Jews had lived since the before um, the creation of Christianity or Islam, way back in the before the common era, that that should be a place that Jews should wish to both inhabit and re-inhabit, um, and and to make it sound like a vicious land grab um, plotted by the Zionists is to me not kosher. Dr. Matei. 
Sure. Well, <laughs> where, where to start? First of all, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. <clears throat> in the recent three or four decades, probably at least 5% of the uh, land in Vancouver has been purchased by Asians. They're welcome to it. They have the right to come here and to buy land. That does not give them a right to establish a state here. Furthermore, if Rabbi Wolpe really wishes to check the statistics, he'll find that when you, when you look at how much of the land of Eretz, Israel, or Palestine was purchased by Jewish uh, colonists or settlers, or their benefactors, the Rothschilds and others, it was about 5 or 6%, period. But even if you purchase land, that does not give you a right to establish a state there. I'm not questioning the right of Israel state to exist. I already said they existed. I'm just trying to set the record straight. Number one. Number two, let's take a, a hypothetical, but historically almost possible scenario. When uh, Theodor Herzl, who, like me, was a Hungarian Jew, um, and his birthplace was just a block away from the synagogue where my uncle was the chief cantor when I was a child. Theodor Herzl dealt with the British and he also dealt with the Russians. He spoke with all kinds of people in power who could possibly support the establishment of a Jewish state. And the British offered him Uganda for Jewish settlement, which Herzl was willing to accept. And it was his defeat at the 1903 Zionist Congress where the Eastern European Zionists, who had an emotional, spiritual, and historical connection to Palestine, said, no, we're not going to go to Africa. But let's assume that he had accepted it. How would the Ugandans have felt about that? And if, if Rabbi Wolpe had said to the Ugandans, well, there's all these 21 or 30 different countries in Africa and millions of Africans, why can't you have one Jewish country? It's nonsense. The Palestinians were not Moroccans, they're not Tunisians, they were not Iraqis, they're not they were not Muslims like Iranians. You know, they were Muslims, but they're not Iranians. They didn't want to give up the country. Why would they want to? Who would expect them to? As to the um, expulsion of Jews from the Arab lands, that's true. It happened for two reasons. Number one, the Zionists did everything they could to exacerbate and to provoke those, those expulsions, number one. And number two, um, this happened after the, ref the expulsion of the Palestinians. And Rahel, you questioned the use of the word expulsion. Look, as I said to you, I'm only quoting Israeli and Zionist and, and Jewish sources. If I can name you seven or eight Israeli historians who said the Palestinians were expelled, who am I to argue with them? I'm simply using the word they use. One more thing. I never said anything about vicious, okay? I never said that the Jews came there with vicious intentions. They came there with the intention of establishing a Jewish homeland in a country to which Jews have always had a spiritual, emotional, and uh, historical connection, and rather always being Jews. That's all true. All I said was, and all I mean was, whether I said it or not, they could not have established, accomplished their purpose without brutality, without expelling the local population, without oppressing them. 
and Zionist historians have said the same thing. Benny Morris, who documented, was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first, to document the expulsion of the Palestinians said, we could not have created our state any other way. So this is not, why would I argue with that? I do want to just, I, I think it's important just to make the distinction that Uganda was actually an existing country with an existing government. The last time there was a state in Palestine, uh, the country called Palestine, which comes from the Romans, um, was actually when Israel was a state and destroyed in 70 and then 135. After that, it was a succession of empires, the Ottomans, the British, the Romans, but there was never a separate country. The only separate country before Israel was Israel. Robert Wolpe, can I ask you a question? Sure. Okay. I'm not going to argue with you about history, uh, states or not states. There's a lot of states in the world that never existed even 60 years ago or 80 years ago. So states are being born all the time. We're I agree. About, okay. We're talking about human experience. Okay. Yes. The experience of human beings. Now, let's assume that I'm a Palestinian in 1920. Okay. And you come to me as the Zionist, I just quoted the Zionist leader who said that our intention is to make Palestine as Jewish in as short a time possible as, as America's American and British, British and England is English. Yes. Explain to me why I should be happy about that and accept it. I think that's a very fair question. I really do. And I don't think that you would be happy or accept it. I understand that. The question that I have is not so much I mean, although we can still and probably would dispute percentages and how exactly the state was founded. But my question is more this, which is the Palestinian situation. You know, there, there are two parts of this that actually I think are important. One is the perpetual refugee status of the Palestinian people, which has been exacerbated by the fact that the entire Arab world wishes to keep them as a sort of I mean, that's part of the tragedy of the Palestinian people is that the Arab world wants to keep them as a separate refugee um, claim uh, on the world, which is why it's the only people in the world where refugee status is inherited from parents to child and why there are two refugee organizations at the UN, one for the entire world and the other for the Palestinians. So there is a special situation that is created there. But however grievous the historical wound all the other historical wounds that you've mentioned, like, for example, the Balkans, have found a way to coexist and to accept one another. The only historical wound where there is no acceptance, however grievous the original wound may be, is the acceptance of Israel. Israel has made multiple peace offers. Every single one has been rejected. We are fighting Hamas, and I know that that was the catalyst for this conversation. Hamas explicitly says that it wishes to destroy the state of Israel. So at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, apart from the origin, what is the end? Like, what is the place that we're going to if you are still in a place where you are surrounded by nations that will never heal? I'd like I'm sorry. to Piece yeah. to that question. To actually ask both of you to think about this and respond to this, but Dr. Matei, my assumption is that you are going to respond to the question that Rabbi Wolpe just shared. 
The question that came in from many, many people, and this was the third most asked question, was whether you believe, the two of you, not to one of you, that Hamas's goals are genocidal in nature? And if so, are they doing tremendous damage in acting and remaining as the representatives of the Palestinian people in Gaza? And so as you answer that question, if we could also add that addition, and then Rabbi Wolpe, if you could speak to that as well. Right. Which was, would you like us to speak first? Dr. Mateo. Okay. Well, first of all, this idea of the Arabs not accepting Israel and rejecting it and wanting to maintain the Palestinians as refugees, just not the way it is. I'm going to quote you Nahum Goldman. Nahum Goldman was the uh, president. He was a leading Zionist. He was the founder of the World Jewish Congress and for 27 years, the president of the World Zionist Organization. And in 1970, he said, in 30 years, Israel has never presented the Arabs with a single peace plan. She has rejected every settlement plan devised by her friends and by her enemies. She has seemingly no other object than to preserve the status quo while adding territory piece by piece. And I quote you, uh, Shlomo Ben-Ami, who's the former uh, foreign minister of Israel, who took part in the Camp David Accords, and he said in an interview in 2006, Camp David was not the missed opportunity for the Palestinians. And if I were a Palestinian, I would have rejected Camp David. Furthermore, a whole number of times, all the Arab states have said that they're willing to accept and make peace with Israel and recognize Israel based on the 1967 borders. Israel has doggedly rejected every one of those initiatives. That's just the truth. No. No, that... Why don't you respond? I was just going to say always with the right of return, which means millions of Palestinians would come back to Israel and there would no longer be a Jewish state. And that right of return was never given up in any of the negotiations. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. So let me tell you something. You and I have the right to return tomorrow. You and I have the right to fly to Tel Aviv the day I get citizenship the day after and by two days later, we could be living in the occupied territories in subsidized settlements, getting three times as much water as the average Palestinians and have the right to vote. We talk about, you talk about how the Palestinians are considered refugees even after generations. <laughs> what about us? We still talk about ourselves, at least the Zionists talk about us, as being exiles. This is after 2,000 years. So, I mean, I'm going to ask you. So... Is going to be, no, that's the first one. The second point is that Palestinian right of return was a negotiation point. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but it's been really clear that if we're willing to talk about it, it would not be a question of millions of Palestinians returning. But all I'm saying is, in for the sake of fairness, how come I have the right to return and my friend, Palestinian friend, uh, Hannah, living in Vancouver, can't even visit? What's the justice in that? The point of the right of return was not to allow one person to visit another what not. It was to allow, in the state of Israel, Jews to return from exile for the simple reason that, as you've heard, no other country in the world was going to take them. That was the justification of the right of return. The right of return for the Palestinians, as you well know, and has been said explicitly by any number of Palestinian leaders, is you no longer have a Jewish state if you have 
a billion Muslims in the world and you have 15 million Jews. And if tomorrow you decide that in fact, anybody who wants to can return to the state of Israel, how long do you think the state of Israel, A, will be Jewish and B, by the way, will survive? Because the only way that the, Jew, the Jewish state has survived is by having a military superiority. All right. Um, I'm not sure what hundreds of millions of Muslims in Indonesia have to do with Israel. Um, I, I'm but, to... no, but, but, I'm, okay. but I'm telling you that um, if I have the right to return after 2,000 years, why doesn't my friend Hannah have the right to return after 70 years? If you know, your right to return will destroy the state that I have built, it's different but, from my right to return. But my right to return destroys their right to a state. Into a, no, it doesn't. Yes, All, it does. No, well, they, are, they are welcome to create a state. That's what the two-state solution is supposed to be about. Very good, then. Let's go. But to... by the way, I, I just want to say, like, yeah. I have no right to return to Gaza. I mean, Gaza has been Judenrein. It's been without Jews. The West Bank has been without Jews. All these Arab nations have been without Jews. Does, does a Turkish Jew have a right of return to Turkey? No. Does a Syrian Jew have a right of return to Syria? No. Does an Iraqi Jew or Iranian Jew have a right to return to those countries? No. That's what happens sometimes. What happens is not everyone gets to always go back to places from which they have left or been expelled or had to leave. That's the reality. But if you have a state and the Palestinians could have had a state numerous times, then they would have a right to return to that state. That's the idea. All right. Well, this is what we're going to get into, and I don't want to get into. Um, okay. Well, if you, if you want no, to exit no, no, this. No, 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 no. no. Okay. Your, your response is welcome. I'm just saying I don't want to go back to countering everything you just said. You know, I stayed okay. in that position. My position was as, and I only quoted Israelis again, that Israel has never actually um, offered any genuine peace to the Palestinians. By the way, um, I found that out, um, not from Palestinian, but again, from Israeli and Jewish sources. And that's all I've ever quoted here. I could quote you a lot more, but I'm not going to. Let me come back to Rahal's question about Hamas, okay? So, um, first of all, I, I don't want to be put into position, and I don't think you're trying to, Rahel or, or Robert will be of being a Hamas defender, okay? Right. I'm not in favor of any fundamentalist religious organization, Christian, Jewish, or Muslim. They tend to be extremists. Much of the West Bank is not populated by extremist fundamentalist Jews. And you seem not to have any kind of problem with that. You say that, you know, no, but maybe you haven't spoken about it yet. Maybe I'm misjudging you. You know, that's fine. I'm just telling you, that's the reality. Now, everybody talks about the Hamas Charter. Uh, the Hamas Charter explicitly rejects the right of Israel to exist as a, um, as a state. It does not reject the right of Jews to live in Palestine. I've looked at it. You can look at it. Um, okay. Now, if you look at the Likud Charter, would you? It also excludes the right of the Palestinians to a kind of a state, the Likud uh, platform of 1977. And uh, if you look at any of the Zionist leaders and their comments and their intentions, they never intended for the Palestinians to have any kind of an e existence inside Israel or as an entity. So um, why are we talking about the Hamas Charter? 
Why am I talking about the Likud Charter? You know, because the Likud is actually the governing part of Israel, has been for a long time, in, in coalition with other parties. But they are very clear, and they said so in so many words, that from the river to the sea, there cannot be anything but a Jewish entity. That's what they say. What's the difference? So I'm saying you've got two charters. The Hamas Charter, which says that there's no right for the Zionist state to exist. And then there is the Likud Charter that says there's no right for the Palestinians to exist, the Palestinian state to exist. You're furring your brows like you don't believe me? Yes, because it was a Likud, it was a Likud uh, prime minister who made the deal with Egypt, a Likud prime minister who was at Camp David. I mean... Olmert in 2008 offered 97% of the West Bank and Gaza and a capital of East Jerusalem. How can you say that Israel hasn't made offers? I, I, I don't understand. However, I will also say, yes, I object to the religious extremists who think that all of the land belongs to them because God said so. I think that it is crucial for people of goodwill, and I wish there were more of them, to create two states um, I just, unfortunately, don't see that same will um, on the Palestinian side in the numbers that would make it possible when, when the head of the PA says, you know, that the Holocaust never happened and the head of Hamas and denies the temple and the connection of Jews to the land, it becomes very difficult to believe in the goodwill of the people that he rules. Okay, again, I'm not here as a Hamas spokesman, but the Hamas Charter actually talks about how terrible what happened to the Jews in Eastern Europe was. Okay, they yes, actually, it does. It does. It does. Just, and it also no, says no, no, from no, the. No, no, please. Okay. All I'm saying is that when you say it's a Likud prime minister made a deal with Egypt, of course it did, because Egypt agreed to step out of the pro Palestinian alliance. And the giving up the Sinai by Israel, to which Israel never had a right in the first place, was the, was the by which Egypt was bought off to, to permit the continued uh, um, settlement and dispossession that's, and that's going on daily in the West Bank. Um, by the way, by the way, as you, both you and I know, um, Menachem Begin was a terrorist. And uh, Yitzhak Shamir was a terrorist by any definition of the word. They committed terrible war crimes. They became prime ministers of the Jewish state. So who are we to cast uh, stones at the other side? For, you know, uh, let's just, all I'm, all I'm asking in this conversation is that whatever standard we apply to one side, we also apply to the other side. That's all I'm asking for. I, I ask for the same. So then Rafael, if back to you. <laughs> back to me. And if you are both asking for the same, and there is conversation both about charters and the idea of what Hamas's charter says, I want to actually bring it back to the question at hand. We received a lot of questions about what Hamas perpetrated on October 7th. We received a tremendous amount of questions that actually had to do with the gender-based violence on October 7th. 
Before we get to the gender-based violence, something that Dr. Matei, I think that you had actually referenced with regard to years earlier with gender-based violence coming the other way, I want to really be able to narrow down the question that I asked. Whether you agree with the charter of Hamas or not, are Hamas, is Hamas, the way that they acted on October 7th, the gender-based violence, the violence in general, the concept of a terrorist attack to begin with, the taking of hostages that are still being held to this day, do you believe that Hamas's goals and what they did are doing damage to the Palestinian people? Is Hamas really the true representative of the Palestinian people? And how do we navigate that? And I'd like you to speak to that specifically. And I don't remember whose turn it is. So I'm happy to go to Rabbi. Is you want to start or Dr. Mate? No, it's Dr. Wolpe's turn, actually. Oh, sorry. Rabbi Wolpe. Okay, that's, a, that's all right. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I do think that Hamas is doing tremendous damage to the Palestinian cause. Uh, in many, many different ways. And, and I think that there are many Palestinians who believe that, but most of them are afraid to say so for obvious reasons, because it is, uh, is ill-advised to oppose a regime that uh, came into power in part by eliminating its rivals. Um, and, and second, I think that, yeah, the the testimony of gender-based violence, which was extensive and gruesome, and even I spoke to people in Israel whose family members had been victims of gender-based violence, um, was not only awful, but it was the awfulness of it was compounded by the slowness of official groups to acknowledge it, like the United Nations, um, despite the fact that the evidence was manifest, and then by deniers online who claim that no, such violence never happened, um, where, which I have to say, um, I take the, Dr. Mate's point about how people tend very quickly to go to themselves and to their people as victims. But in this particular case, I cannot imagine for a moment that there would be a denial of such explicit testimony for any other group in the world other than uh, Israelis and Jews. And, and it's, for me, um, somewhere between disgusting and nauseating that that's so. All right. Um, Rachel, I'm going to ask you, Rahel, I'm sorry. I'm going to ask okay. you to repeat the question, okay? So sure. that I can really answer it. So the question actually focused on the original question that I had asked with regard to Hamas. Right. If we are looking, you both talked about Hamas's charter. We talked about Likud's charter and we talked around the issue. But I want to actually get to this particular question, which is, is Hamas doing tremendous damage as representatives right now as the, of the Palestinian people in Gaza? We know that there was testimony of gender-based violence on October 7th. There has been much that has been written, whether in investigative form or by way of actual testimony of whether it's first responders, 
or whether it is people that actually heard and saw what was happening. Um, I myself sat in the UN and heard testimony. And I say that in asking the question of what Hamas did on October 7th, are they really acting in the best interest and as the right representatives of the Palestinian people, or are they doing more damage than good? All right. Let me give you a short answer and then a longer one. On October the 7th, my response, as my two sons could tell you, was that Hamas committed a crime, it, that what Hamas did was criminal. And for, furthermore, it was an act of criminal stupidity because they knew the brutality of the Israeli response, having seen Israel massacre thousands of Palestinians before. I knew exactly what was gonna happen. None of this struck me as a surprise. I'm still horrified every day what we're seeing in Gaza today by what, what Jewish Holocaust experts have said is near genocide or genocide, but I knew it was gonna come. So I thought first it was a criminal act, and it was. It was an atrocity, there's no question here, number one. Number two, I very much feared what's going to happen to the Gazan population as a result, knowing how unfettered and rural the Israel response has been for decades and decades and decades and decades. So that's the short answer. Okay. Now, the long answer is somewhat different, which is that the very framing of the question is rather typical of the conversations that are being held around this issue. Nobody ever asks. Nobody ever asks, how should we respond to Israel's brutal treatment of the Palestinians for the last 75 years? Nobody ever asks, how should Hamas respond to the IDF that has killed tens of thousands, thousands of Palestinians? Nobody ever asks, how should the Palestinians respond to the hundreds of deaths in the West Bank that has occurred this year at the hands of the army and at the hands of the settlers? including the deaths of children, as documented again by Israeli journalists. Those questions are not raised. The questions are always, how do we respond to Hamas? Well, that's a fair question, but there's an equally fair question that's never asked, which is how should Hamas and the Palestinians in general respond to Israel and to the historical expulsion and mass killings? Now, October the 7th was not the first massacre in or near Gaza. In 1953, the Israelis massacred Palestinians in Gaza. In 1956, again they did. One of the founders of Hamas, and again, I'm not here as a spokesperson or any kind of an apologist. I'm just saying the facts. There was an eight-year-old boy who watched his uncle being killed by the Israelis in a massacre of civilians that was again documented by Israeli historians. He then becomes the first leader of Hamas. He, was, he became a pediatrician and he said, I couldn't sleep for many months after I saw my uncle being killed. It left a wound in my heart that can never heal. I'm telling you a story and I'm almost crying. This sort of action can never be forgotten. They planted hate in our hearts. There was a lot of hatred, vicious hatred that went into what happened on October the 7th? Where did it come from? 50 years ago, Hamas didn't even exist. Now, in terms of the history of Hamas and Gaza, I just ask you to consult the sources. Hamas won 
again, I'm not here to apologize. I'm just telling you what happened. There was a free election held in Palestine, um, I think 2005 or 2003, which according to international observers, including the Jimmy Carter Center, was the freest election ever held in the Arab, any Arab country. Hamas happened to win. Why did they win? Because by that time, the PLO had totally discredited itself as corrupt, as oppressive, and as a handmaiden to the Israeli occupation. So the Palestinians chose this militant group, you know, and then Israel and, and the United States tried to support the PLO in displacing Hamas, and Hamas defeated them. And then Hanna was put, uh, uh, Gaza was put on this blockade. So I'm saying, without going into all the details, and I could speak for four hours here, I'm just telling you, there's a whole different view of history and what happened there and where Hamas came from. Now, is Hamas the right leadership for Israel, for, for the Palestinians? I ask, why don't, why don't we asking, is Likud the right leadership for the Jews or for Israel? Because it's the Jews' right to decide who their leaders should be. And, 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 and Israel's right to select governments, even if those governments include openly fascistic elements, like the current one does. Why aren't we asking the opposite? All, all I'm saying is, let's apply the same standard to both sides. Rabbi Wolpe, what is your response to that? My response to that is, first of all, that's a question that is asked every single day in Israel, because in Israel there is a free press, and in Israel there is a democratic process. What, what we haven't heard is that that was the last election. That may have been a free election, but it was also the last one. It, after that, neither Hamas nor the PA ever put themselves up for election again. And by the way, just not to elide the history so much, many PA officials were executed by Hamas um, when they contested the election, um, because once Hamas is in power, it's not going to be dispossessed. Benjamin Netanyahu will be out of power when he's voted out of power. And uh, I think that that should happen soon and probably will happen soon. Um, but there are democratic elections in Israel. That is not true um, in most of the Arab world, unfortunately. Um, and there isn't a very developed political culture there. And it's quite remarkable that there is in Israel because the vast majority of people in Israel came from dictatorships and from autocracies and totalitarian regimes and yet managed to establish a democracy. And I wish in this, at least, they would influence the nations around them to do the same. I'd like to respond very briefly, if I may. Please, go ahead. Um, yeah, the Arab world is largely dictatorial, run by oligarchies and uh, dictatorships, which are supported by the United States. There were free elections in Egypt. Somebody won. An American-supported coup overthrew them. Uh, the, after Hamas won the, the election in, uh, in, in, in the occupied territories, Hillary Clinton said, uh, if we're going to have an election, we should have made sure that the right people are going to win. That's the American attitude towards election. Look at any number of elections around the world that the Americans have subverted or overly overthrown by coups when they don't like the results, number one. Number two, it's very difficult. First of all, secondly, Israel is not a democracy. It's, it's what the Israeli historian Shlomo Sant has called an ethnocracy. It's designed to ensure the rule of a certain ethnic groups 
group. There's no democracy for the Palestinians living under occupation, whose lands are grabbed every day, whose children are jailed every day, who are tortured every day. Do you know that in, according to a New York Times report a few months ago, Palestinians whose homes are destroyed by settlers, when they come back to their homes, they don't have the right to even put a tarp over their living room to protect the rain from coming in because that would be construction without permit and their home could be bulldozed by the Israeli army. Don't believe me, read the New York Times. So under those conditions, under those conditions, it's extraordinarily difficult to have elections. This is a, this is a people under siege, under occupation, under daily brutality. And when we talk about the hostages, how about the thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli jails for the crime of opposing the illegal occupation of their country? How about the children that are being beaten and tortured in Israeli jails? How about that? Do we ever talk about that? I'm only asking again. And then they may say that they don't have free elections. But no, they don't. We don't let them. We don't, give, we don't create the permissions for them to live in the conditions where democracy is even possible. That's just how it is. And by the way, who supports and uses the manipulative, corrupt um, Palestinian Authority, Israel. And by the way, who supported Hamas? This is not even controversial. Netanyahu did. Israel did. Because they wanted somebody there with whom they wouldn't have to negotiate. That's just how it is. Again, I don't make so, this stuff up. I don't make this stuff so, up. Two very quick responses. First of all, in terms of which elections America supports or doesn't, the, the discussion about American foreign policy, I think, should be a different Zoom. Let's bracket that for a moment. Um, I don't want to discuss Hillary Clinton's choices of words. Um, but on the second point, uh, actually, um, it's, it's an ethnocracy <laughs> because there's a mixed population. You know, there are over a million Arabs who live in Israel and choose to live in Israel and serve some in the army, on the Supreme Court, in the Knesset, in other countries around there, including, I mean, in the West Bank and Gaza, but that goes without saying, in other countries around there. The reason that that isn't an issue is because there are no Jews or Christians in them because they have long since purged any other elements. And so when we're talking about a group that is willing actually to, the only Christians that live in the Middle East now are Christians that live in Jerusalem, in Israel, because except maybe a few still left in Lebanon, but those are also being gradually pushed out of Lebanon um, by Hezbollah and Iran, who is behind this. And we haven't even talked about Iran, even though so much of this is about Iran. But I just want to say also, I was in Israel in 2002 after the second intifada, after there were 150 suicide bombings on buses, in cafes, aimed always at civilians, always, not at soldiers, at people I went into the, to the, um, to the, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, it begins with an S, uh, cafe where they were having a Seder. And I saw the knives and forks in the ceiling from the force of the suicide bombs. So let's not make this into, uh, you know, the the um, Israelis are doing all these awful things and then sitting back in their chairs and smoking their cigars and, you know, and petting their uh, 
their dogs in their smoking jackets. It doesn't work that way. In fact, they have on their border people who have in the past shown that they will do anything, anything, including attack Jewish sites outside of Israel, synagogues, restaurants, other Jews and Jewish sites. So this is not such a simple um, victimization uh, oppressor narrative as I think some some people may believe from listening um, to my distinguished interlocutor. I want to pause for a second. Because I want to I I pause for one second. I want to just take a moment for the two of you, and I want to take a moment for everybody that's here. Thank you. I want to acknowledge the fact that when you are navigating the narrative of different people, when you are not when you are navigating the complexity of having these conversations, the fact that I don't think anybody expects for the two of you and myself to actually solve this in terms of a dilemma, right? The question of how we get to peace. But I also think that we have to navigate through the messy and the nitty gritty and all of the different aspects of the different lived experiences and narratives. It's interesting to me that when I asked the question that I asked, it felt as though, and I wanna, Dr. Matei, I wanna give you a chance to really be able to respond to Rabbi Wolpe, but also to respond to what I'm about to ask. It felt like a deflection a bit. And I wanna talk about the difference between deflecting an answer and recognizing that there are different lived experiences. You mentioned the concept or you mentioned, you know, the hostages, and I don't wanna put words in your mouth. So I'm going to make it clear that I am not quoting you in anything that you said but you talked about the hostages and then you also talked about without kind of navigating the hostage situation, you know, also talked about all of the brutality and all of the things that have happened and all of the historical things that have happened that are significant, that are real, that are lived experiences. But I also think that a lot of the people that submitted questions here were asking the two of you, to avoid deflecting any of our answers and to really be able to delve into some of the issues that have caused tremendous hatred and tremendous anger amongst people in Israel, Palestine, but also people that exist in North America and Canada and the United States. You know, the concept of the fact that there are still hostages being held by Hamas, whether Hamas was, you know, is the true leader of the people in Gaza, whether they are not, what that lived experience is, why Hamas has come to power. There are currently hostages that are still being held. Instead of deflecting this, let's actually delve into this. Why is it that there is so much hatred or an inability to understand the significance of civilian hostages having been taken from their homes and being held right now by Hamas. I mean, we have literally seen, and I know I have seen, people tearing down hostage posters, claiming that there are no hostages, deflecting the answer or the conversation about hostages into saying, well, other people are being held too. Could we come to a real answer on this particular issue and say, any civilian death that is happening is horrific and the hostages must be returned. And why is it an either or? 
can't we acknowledge the horrific civilian deaths in Gaza and not use that as a deflection as to why we don't acknowledge the horrific situation with hostages that are innocent civilians also being held? Do you want me to answer? I would like you to answer. Thank you. Okay. So first of all, thanks for the question. Secondly, um, when we were setting up this um, this conversation, I asked you whether you have strong views on the subject yourself and whether that would influence your how you monitor and moderate this conversation. And you said very clearly that as best you can understand my point of view, you disagree with a lot of it, but that you would do your best to be an impartial moderator, okay? Which for the most part you have been, and I appreciate it. But on this question, you've become an advocate for a certain point. No, I'm sorry, let me just finish. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, absolutely. Okay, on this question, you've become an advocate, both in your tone and in your uh, content. Now, let me answer you, if I may. Sure. You could have framed the question totally differently. You could have framed the question, what are we going to do about the thousands of Palestinians being held and tortured in Israeli jails? You could have framed it that way. Because that's not disputable. Israeli newspapers, how are its reports on the abuse of Palestinian prisoners? And uh, Betzel and the Israeli Civil Rights Organization has documented it. And amongst the prisoners that Israel was holding um, and released in the first exchange and the only exchange of hostages for prisoners that took place, um, I don't know, a month ago or whenever it happened, the vast majority was 17 or under. Children are being held in Israeli jails. Israeli jails would, will, Israeli, under the military administration, Israel will jail and beat 12-year-olds without a trial. That's how it is. If you don't believe me, read Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, and read uh, the Israeli human rights organizations, uh, uh, the same organization, the Physicians for Human Rights, that denounced the sexual violence that occurred on October the 7th, has for decades documented the torture of Israeli uh, Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Why don't you frame the question that way? I'm asking you. Well, because, I because 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 maybe you don't even know about it, you know. But but but, and I'm sure you're coming from good faith. But I'm saying that the way you frame the question is already biased. Now, what should happen to the hostages? Uh, Hamas again. I'm not here to defend them or to represent them. They, they said, we'll release the hostages when you release our prisoners, period. Israel rejected that and continues to. That's how it is. What's the difference between uh, a Palestinian held in an Israeli jail, civilians, for, 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 for printing um, anti-occupation graffiti on a wall or posting an anti-occupation statement on the internet and they get jailed for it? They are hostages too. What's the difference? 
Well, before I actually turn this back over to uh, Rabbi Wolpe to respond to that, what is the difference, given the fact that I am the moderator and that I am not here to debate either of you, and that we parsed through many, many questions, many hundreds of them that I will say had a visceral tone to them on multiple sides. I will also say that when it comes to asking questions, isn't this a great example of how our own lived experiences in how we hear the way that something is being asked may lend us to not be able to answer a question directly because it puts a little bit of our walls up, right? There is this concept of a lived experience and we did have a conversation beforehand about the fact that we did not agree but that I would bring my moderator voice to this. I do think it's interesting that when we talk about comparing issues and deflecting issues, that many of our own experiences allow us to choose when we want to hear something or not. And so I am not going to respond to that, but I will take that um, and I will take what you are sharing with me and I hear you. And I want to turn this back over to Rabbi Wolpe because this is not a conversation between Dr. Matei and us. No. Um, I certainly, I, I take, I take uh, what Dr. Mate says seriously, and I also am, in one sense, both flattered and pleased that obviously the reason he knows about this is because Israel has a free press, because it has human rights organizations, because Israel reports on its own abuses, and when Israel gets things wrong or does things wrong, you find out about it from Israel. I wish that were true in the country surrounding Israel and the people surrounding Israel. Unfortunately, it is not. And in terms of prisoner exchanges, the one prisoner exchange previous to this one that we had where thousands of people were released for one Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, didn't include 12-year-old boys, but among others, Sinwar, who then who was cured in an Israeli hospital where they treated him for his brain tumor, despite the fact that he was a terrorist leader, restored him to health, returned him in a, in a prisoner exchange to Gaza, and Sinwar is the one who led the attack and planned the attack that massacred the greatest number of Jews killed since the Holocaust in a single day. So I don't think this is a case of innocent Palestinians being returned for Israelis who are occupiers. Um, I think that by and large, the people in Israeli prisons are there because they should be in prison. Not all, to be sure, but uh, those that aren't, we know about because Israel is an open and free society. Um, and being in an open and free society has its advantages and its pains. I need to respond to that. Please. How do you know that they deserve to be there? Do you know what the military trials are like? The, the accused don't even have the right to hear the evidence against them. How do you know? Military trials. No, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. And, and, and the occupied territories under military occupation and military law. Palestinians don't have the right to have a fair trial in Israeli jails. Palestinians don't. Not, not West Bank Palestinians. Israeli Palestinians do. The ones who live inside the 67 borders. That's the first point. The second point is Israel doesn't have the right to arrest a single Palestinian. An occupying power under international law has no right to arrest people that oppose the occupation. They don't. The Palestinians, no the Palestinians have every right 
to write anti-occupation graffiti, to chant as anti-Israel slogans, to uh, even to um, resist by force, you know? And so most of the people in the Israeli jails have nothing to do with uh, terrorism uh, outside their own territory. They're just simply fighting for their what remains and every day less remains of their homeland. Now, um, I'll tell you something. Merrick Edelman is one of my heroes. You might know the name. Merrick Edelman was the second in command of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And um, he was a lifelong defender of Palestinian rights. He survived. He was a war hero. He became a cardiologist. He severely criticized the Palestinians for their anti-civilian um, terrorism. But he supported their right to resist, including to resist with arms against what he considered to be um, occupation, brutality, and, uh, and ethnic cleansing. So you don't have to be a supporter of, 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 of uh, anti-civilian um, terrorism on either side, but it's happened on both sides, at least in equal measure. And I would say more on one side than the other. And that's got nothing to do with why most Palestinians in the West Bank are in jail. Let's not conflate the issues. So what I'm saying, so what I'm saying is, it's a very fair question that, that if you're going to talk about Hamas, from my point of view, had no right to seize Israeli civilians, no right whatsoever. Nobody has any right to seize civilians. Okay, Hamas had every right to seize the Israeli soldiers. You know, it, this is a war that Israel is waging against the Palestinians have has for 75 years, but it has no right to kill, seize, torment civilians. Neither does Israel have the right to kill, torment, or seize civilians. It's doing it all the time. That's just how it is. May I ask you a question? Please. Um, this is a question I'm sure you've been asked before. Yeah. Uh, if tomorrow, or last year, or yeah. five years ago, or 20 years ago, the Palestinians had had the firepower of the Israelis and the Israelis has had the firepower of the Palestinians. Do you believe that any Israeli Jews would be left alive in the land of Israel in a week? That's one of those traps I'm not going to walk into because we're not talking about uh, anything real. What we're actually talking about is one of the world's most powerful militaries with nuclear weapons supported by the worst by the world's foremost military power armed to the teeth with tanks drones airplanes bombs smart bombs dumb bombs yes and, you know, and uh, under uh, that and uh, under uh, that disparity heli heli helicopters and this state has been killing palestinians for decades now you under that no no under that disparity, the population in Gaza and the West Bank has grown faster than almost any other population in the world. And what I'm asking you is, if it were reversed, what do you think would happen to the population of Israel? I know what happens when Israel has that power. What happens is that there are many, 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 many more Palestinians. But if the power were reversed, what would happen to the Jews? I think that that's actually an important question and not a trivial one. Robert Wolpe, first of all, I, I think that your question is, number one, racist. Not that you intended to be, but I think it is in its in it in its uh, tone. Number one, you don't intend to be. I don't accuse you of being a racist. 
I'm seeing the question has got a racist tone to it. I'll tell you why in a minute. Number one. Number two, what would the, whatever the Palestinians think of Jews or Israelis is very much conditioned what by, what by Jews and Israelis have done to them and continues to do to them. You have not addressed anything I've said about the occupation or very little and what happens there. Now, why do I think your question is racist? Because you're assuming that the Palestinians are vicious anti-Semites or murderous and genocidal ones. And that's, I, you know, I want that's, to pause because nobody actually said that. And I no, want to... No, 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 no. Rahel, please. Rahel, please. Nobody said that. I know. That's why I said it wasn't overtly racist. That I, was, I said it was racist in tone because it assumes a certain attitude and a certain point of view on a part of I'm, Palestinians. What the question really is, how would the Palestinians respond if Israel actually offered them freedom, genuine peace, end of the occupation, end of the brutality, end of the host demolitions, how would the Palestinians respond then? And we know historically there's been lots of efforts to create a state for both peoples free of each other's occupation. Israel has never accepted that. So you know what? I don't know how the Palestinians respond. That's how, But ultimately, if they had all the weapons and we didn't, I don't know what would happen. But I can tell you what's happening now. And what's happening now is an ongoing occupation, house demolitions. I don't have to go to the litany again. Anybody can check this if they just look at the literature, including Israeli sources. Anybody can check what's going on. So what we know what's happening. And, and I just want to say that I suspect I do know what would happen, which is why I think you haven't answered the question directly. And the reason I think so is not because I think Palestinians are by nature more vicious than any other human being on earth, but because yeah. I have heard, but because I have heard the statements over and over and over and over again from Palestinians who have expressed precisely the desire that remember from the river to the sea. And from the river to the sea in the original Arabic is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be Islamic, not free. That's the English translation, but that's not what it says. And so I assume that that's exactly what the, the agenda that they would try to prosecute, were they able to do so? And I must say that that scares me. Fair enough. Um, Palestine, um, let me just pause here for a moment because I'm finding myself emotionally getting a bit overwrought here. Okay, so I just want to ground myself for a moment. Okay. Pause. Sorry? I said, let's pause. Let's yeah, let's, pause. Just pause. let's just pause for a moment, okay? Let's pause. Sure. Now. While you're pausing, I will just say, it's. I acknowledge this is hard. This is very hard. And I don't want to pretend for a moment that the emotion is all on one side. It is a very emotional thing to discuss and and... There are lives on the line and people suffering and all of that. And I think if we don't acknowledge that, we're not being real. Well, I appreciate that. I, do, I really do. Thank you. Um, no. Again, if I've been to Palestine a number of times, Israel, Palestine, been to occupied territories, talked to a lot of people. Many people I talk to just want to be left alone. They don't want to kill all the Jews. They just want the Jews to leave them alone. And let's not forget that everything that's done to the Palestinians, all their brutality, 
all the land uh, grabs, all the killings, all the torture is done in the name of the Jewish people. It's done in, in the name of the state of the Jews. I would not be surprised if some people have experienced all that, who've been refugees or suppressed. Um, you know, there's a, um, here's a, he's an Israeli general who talks about the settler strategy. He said this recently. He said, their strategy is we're here, this land belongs to us, we'll kick you off it with all the means we have. It's awful. This is an Israeli general saying this. The former deputy commander of the Israel Defense Forces said that the situation of the Palestinians, this is going to shock you perhaps, the situation of the Palestinians in the West Bank uh, reminds him of the situation of the Jews in Germany before the war, where the Nazi thugs would come and you know, the Bronschurz, the SS, would come and torment and, and uh, assault Jews and Jewish business owners and the police and the army would stand by and even help them. And he said, that's exactly what's happening in the West Bank. Now, given that that's what's happening in the name of the Jews and in the name of the Jewish people, by the way, it's not being done in my name. I hope it's not being done in your name either, but it's set to be done in the name of the Jewish state. Some Palestinians might believe that and really hate Jews. I would not be very surprised by that. What is surprising is how many of them don't hate the Jews when you actually speak to them. Rabbi Wolpe, do you take issue with the comparison of any of this to Nazi Germany? I'm, I do, but I don't want to focus on that in particular. Instead, I just, I, I know that we're coming, I just got the notice that we're coming to the end of the time. I do want to say this, which I actually think is important. Um, what happens in Palestine goes beyond Palestine. I think we all agree with that. And what happens in Israel goes beyond Israel. And there is throughout the Islamic world, and I say that with a great deal of sadness, because I know historically Jews did better in the Islamic world than they did in the Christian world. They didn't do great in either, but they did historically better in the Islamic world. But there is, throughout the Islamic world now, a toxic anti-Semitism that is very powerful, very pervasive. Um, the other day I was on a podcast where somebody mentioned that Ayan Hirsi Ali, who'd grown up in Somalia, never met a Jew, never met anyone who met a Jew, but knew Jews were evil. And that anti-Semitism and its virality are not incidental to everything that is going on around the world around this conflict. And... And you cannot, especially given Dr. Mate's personal history, you cannot be a Jew in this world without the antenna of what this conflict stands at the center of. And so I am both deeply empathetic and sympathetic to suffering, um, not only of my own people, but uh, of Palestinians and others who suffer, but I am also terrified that this tiny people that is less than 0.1% of the world is quite literally clawing for its existence. And that scares me. And I can't close this conversation without expressing that fear. I want to take what you both just shared 
And I want to actually center this entire conversation as we come to the close of this. I want to share for every single person that is watching this, that is watching this in the future, that is watching this live. As Rabbi Wolpe, as Dr. Matei have both expressed in their tone, in their words, in the way that you have shared your incredibly differing opinions on many of these issues. The idea of having a Zoom session of how we get to peace, the idea of even engaging in that conversation, a question that we didn't even have an opportunity to really ask means that there is a requirement to deal through all of the messiness, to really be able to understand not only the differing views, but how he did and how personal everything feels. And so as we come to a close, I'm going to ask both of you if there is something, one thing that you would want everybody listening to hear from your perspective. And Dr. Matei, I turn to you. Just to clarify, I didn't raise I didn't raise Israel to Nazi Germany. I quoted an Israeli general as having done so. Can you got that? Yes. Thank you for that clarification. Thank you. Really important. Okay. Number one. Number two, yeah, this conflict is taking place in a much larger world. Rabbi Wolpe is quite right about that. Question is how do we understand that larger world? The larger world is also is that the indigenous populations of the world for hundreds of years now has been dominated by, exploited by, and killed in vast numbers by colonial countries, including the United States, including Canada, including Denmark, sorry, including Holland, for example, including Belgium. Does the world even know that the Belgians killed 10 million Africans little over a century ago so that we live in a colonial world and so that how to understand that colonial world and the response of the islamic world to that colonialism and to that brutal assault half a million iraqis killed 20 years ago based on a complete lie of weapons of mass destruction so that's the world that we live in so if we want to understand what's happening with in the islamic world we have to put in the context of the larger world now how do we come to peace? I'll make this very simple. The Arab countries have said that they'll accept the state of Israel within the 1967 borders. Israel has rejected that. And, and, and the current Israeli government says that there's been no Palestinian entity, no non-Jewish entity west of the Jordan River. If we want peace, the occupation has to end. There has to be a reasonable resolution to the refugee problem, which will not include 6 million Palestinians returning to Israel. But it at least, but the principle has to be recognized that they have the right to discuss it, just as we have the right to go back to Israel, go back. So in other words, the historical fact of the Arab expulsion in 1947-48 and the 200,000 that were expelled in 1967, and the ethnic cleansing, all this has to end. It has to be acknowledged. It has to end. The right of all these nations to exist in peace has to be acknowledged by all sides. I've quoted Israelis as telling you 
that the Arabs have offered that and the Israelis have not accepted it because their intention has always been expansion and settlement. And that's even in the Likud constitution that settlement is our right and our duty. And as long as that's the case, there'll be no peace. If Israel is ready to give up settlements, accept the right of a Palestinian state, negotiate about the rights of the Palestinian refugees, peace will be possible. That's the minimum condition for peace. Rabbi my, con my concluding remark would be, first of all, yes, massacres are terrible of indigenous and other people, although comparing King Leopold in Belgium to modern Israel is is so beyond. I, 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 didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't compare. Well, you so, mentioned it in the same. Oh, no. Okay, I, okay. I, thank I, you. No, I appreciate no, that. Please. I appreciate yeah, that. So may, I'm may I take that back. May I explain why I said it? Sure. Very brief, just in one sentence. You were painting a large world picture of, of Islamic um, fundamentalism and, and hostility. I, I was saying that happened in the context of hundreds of years of colonial history. That's what okay. I said. I made no comparison between Belgium and Israel. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate that clarification. Absolutely. Thank yeah, you. it is true. There have been some terrible um, massacres that the world does neglect. Um, hundreds of thousands were killed in Syria and the world barely uttered a peep. Um, then the Sudan, seven million people have been displaced. The world says nothing. Um, it is remarkable how able the world is to neglect um, ter truly terrible atrocities and focus all of its ire. Um, I, I'm not accusing Dr. Mate of this in particular, but the world in general focused all of its ire um, on whatever it is that Jews do or Jews are suspected of doing um, without ever uh, acknowledging all the other things surrounding it um, and never giving Jews the right themselves to be indigenous in a land that they have occupied for thousands of years. Um, but what is my uh, what is my hope? My hope is that there will be a mutual acceptance that um, there will one day be a recognition that the Jewish presence in the Middle East is not an alien presence that has to be destroyed, but is a productive presence that has to be cultivated. Um, remember that when Israel made a deal with Egypt, it removed settlers from the Sinai. When Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, it withdrew some 100,000 settlers in Gaza and all the structures, by the way, that they left behind, which were subsequently destroyed by the Gazans. Um, it's not as though Israel can't make sacrifices for peace. It has done it again and again and again. And even though you would think at a certain point it would be fatigued, I believe that it will do it again in the future. And God willing, one day Jerusalem, which means a city of peace, will be um, a city of peace. Though nobody asked, I would say that it is my hope that we will continue to have these conversations, that people who have differing ideologies, differing ideas of what things mean, different lived experiences will take the opportunity to sit down, to have hard conversations, to really think about what it means to have peace, to pray that people stop dying, that people stop being killed, that hostages are returned, that people can go back to their families, and to really be able to understand that when we talk about the idea of 
coming to peace and getting to peace. It is not easy, but we have to believe that it is possible. I want to thank the two of you so much. I want to thank Sinai Temple so much. I want to thank all of you who have viewed this and watched this. And I hope that we see peace very soon. Thank you. Thank you.